is great to be here this morning, and uh, it's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend. My name is Brad Zook, and I'm the high school pastor here at the church, and this is week two in this series called Wise Up. And I do want to mention, the next two weeks are going to be in the book of Job, and so if you know anything about the book of Job at all, you will not want to miss the next two weeks, um, the problem of suffering and some of the questions there, so don't miss that. Well, I am so, so, so excited to talk to you about what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about one of the deepest, uh, most important questions of life, I think. And so I'm going to be talking to you this morning about the, uh, the issue of purpose. Purpose. What is our purpose? And I think when it comes to purpose, we could, uh, we could, I guess, look at this at sort of the macro level and then at the more micro level, big picture and little picture. But we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes today, and it's a fascinating, fascinating book right in the middle of the Old Testament. But so at the macro level, we think of questions when it comes to purpose like, what really am I here for? What really is the purpose of life? Um, what are we all here for? What am I individually here for? What is the point of all this and what's the meaning of all of this? Deep, heavy, sort of philosophical questions, right? And then if we think about at the micro level, uh, at the more practical level, we might ask things like, why do I do what I do? How does this issue of purpose even affect the little things we do, the, the small things, the day in and the day out things? What compels me to act? What motivates me to buy the things I do or to eat the things I do? Or to say the things I do. Isn't our motivation in some sense tied to our purpose? I think so. And so um, in all these things, what is our purpose? Why are we here? I want to show you a diagram this morning as a way to introduce this topic more that really drives home the importance of this purpose question and of why we should ask the question of purpose. So I got this from a 2009 TED Talk. You all heard of these TED Talks. There's hundreds of them. Some of them are pretty amazing. And uh, a guy named Simon Sinek. And he draws three concentric circles like this. But here's what he's, the driving question he poses is, why do some leaders and organizations uh, inspire and motivate others to success? And why are they so successful themselves, but others don't? Why is it that some individuals and some leaders and some organizations uh, really achieve greatness? Why do they sort of win or why do they become successful? And so he gives a number of illustrations. He says, why is Apple how do they continue to be innovative year after year after year? After all, they're just a computer company, and yet every year it seems like they're just more innovative than all of their competition. Their competition has the same access to resources as they do. Why them? Or Martin Luther King. When you think about uh, why was Martin Luther King the voice in the civil rights movement? He certainly wasn't the only person to suffer in a pre-civil rights America, and he wasn't the, only, uh, the greatest you know, orator at the time. He wasn't the only orator of the day. Why him? And then uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright, he uses them as an example. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, all these groups were trying to, to figure out controlled, powered man flight. What was it about the Wright brothers that beat out their competition, where there was other groups and teams that were much better funded, were much more highly educated, um, were more well-known? Why did the Wright brothers, with simply the funding that their bicycle shop made, how were they able to achieve this. So he says this, as it turns out, there's a pattern. As it turns out, all of the great and inspiring leaders of our day operate, and they think, act, and communicate in a certain way, and it's the opposite of everyone else. And so he has three concentric circles, and he labels them this way. Maybe you've seen this video, why, how, and what. He says, this simple idea explains why some leaders inspire and sort of achieve greatness and success and others don't. Let me define these. Every person 
Every organization, 100% of the time, knows what they do. That's a given, right? We all know that. Some know how they do it, whether that's a certain strategy you use with your company or organization or a way that you've been trained. But very, very few know why they do what they do. And when I say why, I'm not talking about a profit. That's a result. He says, I'm talking about purpose, a cause. What's your mission? Why do I exist? Why does my company exist? And he says, everybody intuitively operates from the outside in. It's just the way it's the, the most concrete to the most fuzzy. And so when we wake up in the morning, most of us, we think about what we're doing that day, don't we? We don't think about why we're doing it, but we start here. He says, the really great organizations and leaders, they start from the middle. And he draws a line out with an arrow. They start with the why question. He says, take Apple as an example. And he says, Apple, everyone knows Apple, and they're easy to understand. If Apple did a marketing message, like everyone else, they might put it something like this. We're a computer company. How do we make computers? We make computers that are beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. Do you want to do do buy one? Eh. But that's how most of us communicate. This is what we do. You know, uh, uh, a lawyer firm. We have the best lawyers and the biggest clients you know, do business with us. Here's my new car. It gets great gas mileage. You know, it has leather seats. It parks itself, these new cars. Buy my car. Everyone's going for an action here, a behavior, a, a vote, something. They all work from the outside in. What it, this is how Apple actually communicates. In everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo. We believe in thinking differently. We challenge the status quo by making products beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. Oh, we just happen to be a computer company. See, this isn't who we are. This is who we are. This is just what we do and what we make. Now I want to buy a computer from you. He says this over and over again. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Why do you exist? I sometimes like to put it like this. Who we are is not primarily found in what we think or what we say or necessarily even in what we believe. Who we are is found here and what our purpose is. And in fact, who we are is found more so in what we love, as we'll see later today. But he says you need to start with why. If you want to see the rest of this, just Google start with why, and you can watch the rest of this TED Talk. But why do we do what we do? We need to start there. Do you feel like you have a purpose? Some of us do. Most of us do. We have good answers for questions like that, right? But there are still those times, aren't there? And maybe they're few and far between, but there are still those times. And there is for me when I wake up in the morning and I just go, oh, another day. And day after day seems to be pretty much the same. And week after week, why do I exist? Why am I here? What if I don't know why I do what I do? What if I only know what I do? What then? Does God really have a purpose for my life? Or are we all just accidents? Am I, am I just an accident? There's, what, six billion people on this planet? Does God care about me? Do we really have purpose? Really? What's the meaning of all of this? Well, in our passage for today, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find that the author here is wrestling with these very same questions. Now, I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I feel like this book is so relevant for our modern world today. And I remember when I, I discovered this book for the very first time, I was a high school student. I was 16 or 17 years old. And we had just recently moved from a little tiny town in Illinois to a little tiny town, an even smaller town in Kansas. And, uh, and I remember I was wrestling with these issues of 
what am I here for? What's my purpose on this planet? It wasn't a horrible move, but I remember I was still, I was just, I was maturing as a high school student, and I thought, why did God make me? What am I here for, really? And sometimes we think about this even, right? Why am I not happier? I remember really going, why am I not more, don't we all just live to be happy? And doesn't our happiness, isn't that tied to purpose as well? We just want to be happy. But what changed for me, or what was at least significant for me at the time, is I started reading the Bible on my own for the very first time as a junior in high school. And so my dad was a pastor. He has been my whole life, still is today. So I grew up going to church, but I never read the Bible on my own until I was 16 or 17 years old, somewhere in there. It was my junior year of high school. And then the dingy, dark little youth room in the basement of our country church on a coffee table, there was a stack of devotional booklets. And I grabbed one, and it was just a tool. It was just a resource for me to dive into the scriptures on my own, and I began reading it. But as I was processing some of these deep, heavy questions, right, I came across this gem of a book called Ecclesiastes, and I found that the the teacher, the author there, was just wrestling with some of the same questions. What are we all here for? And even though it starts off pretty pessimistic, as you'll see, there is a resolution. He ends on a high note. And so I want to dive in this morning. If you happen to have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd encourage you, love for you to pull that out and follow along with me. We're going to be looking this morning at part of the first chapter of the book and then at most of the last chapter. So just chapter 1 and chapter 12 this morning. Now as you're turning there, verse 1 simply refers to the author as the teacher, as I just mentioned. If you have the King James Version or the NASB, some uh, refer to him as the preacher. But what's so fascinating to me is this teacher, this preacher, is not really doing a whole lot of teaching or preaching, at least not as we normally think of people doing that. Not really giving a sermon, not really teaching a seminar. The guy's mostly asking questions, and it's pretty bleak, and yes, he's pretty negative, and, uh, but nonetheless, um, he's asking questions. And many times I find he doesn't give a whole lot of answers. There's resolution at the end, but as we're going to see, the rest of the Bible really answers his questions. In fact, it would be interesting if this book was at the very beginning of the Bible, sort of a prologue or a preface to the Bible to sort of whet our appetite or get us hungry for more. But so I think a better title for him might be the philosophy professor. He comes across as a philosophy professor. But so let's dive in. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 6 and then 11 through 14. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, it says, meaningless Meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever turning on its course. Skip down to verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So in conclusion... Life is hard, and life is short, and it's all pretty much meaningless, right? And if it was just sunny a minute ago, I think rain clouds just rolled in because dark, right? Bleak, pessimistic. This is how 
this teacher starts the book, and it's heavy. Now I want to dive into just a few small parts of this. Take a closer look at verse 3. Verse 3, he poses the question wonderfully. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do they gain from all their work? And so the, the Hebrew word gain here really means profit or leftovers. After all that's been done, after all the work and laboring that you put into life, what's the leftovers, right? What's what the profit is? You factor out all the costs. What's the profit? What's the point of all this? What difference are you making? See, what we find here is that the people who are really worried about their purpose in life aren't those people who are just busy laboring. It's the people who stop working long enough to think about their purpose. Thinking about our purpose many times makes us sick, doesn't it? Which is why most of us don't do it. We avoid the why question. And we just like to not think about it. But the teacher here, the philosopher, he says you should think about it. It's important to ask this question, just like the diagram showed. We should start there. We should start with why. What if a friend came to you today and said, I want you to go to 72nd Dodge Street this afternoon, and I want you to stand on one of the corners. Would you do that for me, for me from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock? Just two hours. Any one of us would naturally go, okay, Why? Is someone going to bring something to me? Like, why are you asking? And, and if your friend said, no, no, just trust me. Will you just go and do that for me? Just stand on the corner there from three to five. See, nobody would do that. It's totally natural to ask the why question, but none of us would do that. And it's funny because we would not do that on a Sunday afternoon for two hours. And yet many of us do that with our entire lives. We never stop to ask the question, why? What is all our working and striving? What is all our education good for? What's the purpose of it all? But it's a very, very natural question to ask. We should ask it. So in the very first chapter of this book, we see the teacher here is not merely saying life is meaningless, period. There is no purpose, period. No, he's posing one of the deepest questions in life. What he's really actually saying is, if this life is all that there is, then it's completely meaningless. If this life is all that there is, then who cares? If we're all just accidents, there's no point. And in fact, if we're all just accidents, no other philosophy, no worldly philosophy really ultimately holds up. And so for just a second, what are some of those worldly philosophies? What are some of those purposes that people ascribe to today who maybe don't believe in a creator or a maker? They might say this, I just want to make the world a better place. We should just make the world. I'm not sure if there's a meaning or not. There's no way to prove that. I don't think there is. But so while I'm on this earth, we should just make the world a better place. And I think to that, this teacher in Ecclesiastes would say, okay, go ahead. That's, I mean, that's good. That's a, wor- that's a worthy endeavor. People, you should do that. But are you forgetting? In the end, it really makes no difference. Look again at verse 11. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Did any of you wake up this morning thinking about your great-great-grandfather or your great-great-grandmother? Probably not. Again, I know that's sort of sad, maybe. You owe your life to them. You would not be here if it wasn't for them. But we forget. Four very simple words will not be remembered. So the teacher says, okay, that's good. You say, yeah, but, you you know, just a little bit in my little corner of the world, I just want to make a difference. That's good. That's fine. 
But really, in the end, it'll all be forgotten. Or this philosophy, maybe somebody says, I'm just going to live for the simple pleasures of life. Now that's, that's true too. There's tons of simple pleasures in life, right? That's worthy, a nice like ice-cold can of Coke. That's awesome. A piece of cake. There's all kinds of desserts that are simple pleasures. A, a steak, whatever, you know, it's typically food. Maybe some new clothes. There's all sorts of little things that satisfy just for a moment. And in fact, throughout this book, numerous times the teacher says, maybe that's all there is. He gives some validity to this philosophy. Maybe all there is is for us to eat and drink and find satisfaction in the few days we're on this planet. But he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. At the very beginning of chapter 2, there's a whole section on why uh, pleasures are meaningless. And so again, he goes, those won't make you truly happy either. And again, it'll all be forgotten, will not be remembered, he says. And so there's no point to that either. Or finally, you might say, okay, life is meaningless. I'm sure of that. But you know what? We need to rise up above the senselessness and the meaninglessness of life. And doggone it, we should be good anyway. And we need to be compassionate and generous anyway. And again, he goes, you're denying reality. You're even admitting that your origin is meaningless and your destiny is meaningless. Have the courage to admit that this life is meaningless. If this is and this is, where are you getting this idea of meaning? And of course, none of us want to admit that. But the teacher might say to you, you're living as if there is a God or there is a creator or a higher power, but you're not surrendering to, this, to his lordship. So why don't you just admit it? There's no point. Again, none of these endeavors are bad things, right? We know that. We should be generous. We should be, be compassionate. But if we're all just accidents, the last four words of the, of the, the section, it's like chasing the wind. Have you ever tried to chase the wind? It's an effort in futility. He says, uh, he, sa he says, that's it. That's what we got. So that's the, how he starts. Now I want to flip over to the very last chapter. Let's see, how does, he, how does he end? What's the conclusion here? And so I'm going to read, uh, starting at, at verse 1 through verse 8. And so the teacher says this, Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble, trouble come, in the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. He says, before the lights go out, before you grow old and die. Now I'm going to pause here. For the rest of the section, he starts using all sorts of metaphors for an aging body. How our bodies get old, begin to break down. And so look at this. Verse 3, remember your creator. Verse 3, when the keepers of the house tremble. What are you talking about there? Most likely your hands probably, right? When your hand, you start to be sort of shaky. And the strong men stoop, your legs, I think most likely. Uh, when the grinders cease because they are few. What's he talking about there? Your teeth, your teeth start to fall out. Uh, and those looking through the windows grow dim. Your eyesight starts to go. You can't see near as well. Verse 4, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint when your hearing starts to go out. In the beginning of verse 4, when you're shut in, you're shut in, you don't go out anymore. The doors to the street are closed. Verse 5, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. So again, you become weak and frail. It's dangerous to go outside. When the almond tree blossoms. Now, I had to look this one up a little bit. What's going on? I had to look up a picture of a blossomed almond tree. It's covered in little white flowers, most likely referring to white hair. All your hair turns white. When the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred. Now, I have no idea 
where he's going here. It's like he's saying, you're like a dying insect. And the desire thing, I'll let you think what you want about that. No more desire. And then people go to their eternal home. And mourners go about the streets. Verse 6, remember him, remember your creator. Before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. We finally, at the very beginning, he says, remember your creator. He doesn't just say, remember God. He mentions God all throughout this book, but he uses a different word here. He says, remember your creator. We start to get glimpses of a purpose because he says we were created, and if we were created, by default, we have a purpose, right? There, a creator assumes purpose and design. If I create something, if I build something, there's automatically a purpose, right? By definition, if I intentionally create something, it's not an accident. And so no matter what, even if it's uh, a painting, I paint a picture, or I build a little log cabin out of uh, popsicle sticks or something, there's a purpose if we create something, right? It may just be simply to look at, but there is a purpose. When I was young, numerous times at the dinner table, my brother and I would just enjoy, we had this huge dinner table with these huge, heavy, like, oak chairs, and we would always lean back, my brother and I, during dinner on two, two legs, and uh, just see who could balance the longest, my brother and I. And my dad would always say, what's a chair created? A chair was not created to hold up weight on two legs, right? And always we would, we would get there and we would fall over and it would like kill. It would just hurt so bad. Many times there were tears. And my dad would just say, I always am telling you guys, like, knock it off, you know, the issues of Maybe you deal with this with your kids. But the creator of a chair had a design, and if you misuse it, you're not using it according to its purpose. Again, a creator automatically assumes purpose, design. There's a meaning. There's a way that it's intended to work. And so in the simple phrase, remember your creator, the teacher gives us a glimpse of purpose. You were designed. You were created for a reason. God has plans for you, and he says, remember him early in your life. In the days of your youth, before your body begins to age, before your body begins to break down, before death comes. It's so, so important. With the creator, he says, everything means everything. Everything means everything. But without a creator, nothing means anything. It's absolutely meaningless. And so let's go to the teacher's conclusion. How does he end the book? Look with me at these final two verses. I love this. The teacher says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I love how clearly and simply he just comes out with it. In one verse, I, have, I give you all of this. He says, here's all the meaninglessness. All this, you know, wisdom. And in one verse, he says, here's the point. Here's the purpose. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. And let's talk about this just a bit. What does fear God mean? If you were here last week, Jack talked about this quite a lot in his sermon last week. He was in the book of Proverbs talking about the fear of the Lord, how it's the beginning of wisdom. But if you miss that, most of the time, almost a majority of the time in the Bible, when it talks about the fear of the Lord, or simply to fear God, 
It means to be in awe of God, to have this holy reverence and respect for God, to have uh, this, it's this inner condition of awe and humility and wonder at the, at the, the uh, just the bigness of God, at how great he is, how powerful he is, his love and his power and his greatness. I sometimes feel like even maybe a better, say, a better way of saying this is worship God and keep his commandments. When you fear God, it's like, God, I worship you more than anything else on this planet. And what is worship? Worship is just giving something its worth, right? That's sort of where the word comes from, to give something its worth. And so with God, with God Almighty, our maker and our creator, God, how can I even give you your worth? You are worth, you are the highest and the greatest. You are the, the biggest being. I can't even, I can't even fathom you. I can't even fathom your power, your justice, your holiness, your love. Which is why almost every time in the Bible when God appears to Moses or when the angel of the Lord appears to somebody, what happens, right? They fall on their faces. They just go, I can't stand in your presence. You're worth more than anything. And so I want to give you one point this morning, and I've already given you the topic and so we know that, but everything I've said so far is driving to this one point. To know what you're here for, remember your creator. I tried to make it rhyme. And it's not great, but to know what you're here for, we have to remember our creator. That's our purpose. To know what your purpose is in life, remember you were created. You were designed. Your life is not an accident. So dwell on him. Meditate on him, on his goodness, on what he has for you. He's big enough to know you inside and out. The, the Bible tells us all kinds of things about that. The very hairs on your head are all numbered. So we need to worship him above everything else and certainly above other, other things on this earth. Now, here's my question. What else do we find in the rest of the Bible about this? Because as I said at the beginning, the teacher in Ecclesiastes poses a lot of questions, but a lot of the answers are found in the rest of the Bible. And so what do we gather from the rest of the storyline of the Bible? We've established that we have a creator, but what's the essence of our creator? What's the essence of the God of the Bible? I would say this, in one word we might expect this, Love. <laughs> Love, right? That God from eternity past, even in the Trinity, was experiencing loving community among the members of the Trinity. That creation itself was nothing, nothing but the overflowing of the love that God had amongst himself. That's why the, the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. God is a God of love. And we see that so much throughout the New Testament especially, but all throughout the Bible. The commands of God were not given in Egypt. The commands of God were given at Mount Sinai, right? He delivered them first and then said, here are the commands of God. But so when we get to the New Testament, what do we see about this? What kind of creator do we have? The Apostle Paul, in two of his letters we're going to look at, refers to love. You need love. The point of life is to love with a Christ-like love. And without it, it's meaningless. So in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, Many of you have heard this before, perhaps in a wedding. Verses 2 and 3. If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I can fathom all mysteries, and even this, if I have all knowledge, I'm so smart, I have all the facts, I know all the stuff, I have the what, the what, I know what I'm doing. But if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, who cares? It's all pointless. I am nothing without love. And if I give all I possess to the poor... So if I spend my whole life on behalf of the poor and the needy, if I give myself to the causes of social justice and give over my body to hardship, 
that I may boast, but do not have love. Again, I gain nothing, Paul says. Who cares without love? It's meaningless. So we've got to have love. Or take it a step further, again from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, or I'm sorry, 4 and 5. Even before he made the world, before he created the world, God loved us. He chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself. How? Through Jesus Christ. He knew we needed that. He loved us, and this is what he wanted to do. It gave him great pleasure, says Ephesians. There is a meaning. There is a purpose. And so the teacher says, what's the whole duty of mankind? The duty of mankind? He says to fear God and keep his commandments. Yes, that is such a great statement. Both of those things together, worship God and keep his commandments. But don't miss this. Say we take that a step further. What are the commandments of God? What did, when one day when somebody came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what's the greatest of the commandments? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And the second one is very, very much like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so don't miss this. Through the rest of the Bible, we see that that should morph into loving God and loving others. Those two go hand in hand. Fear God and keep his commandments. What are his commandments? To do this. And hopefully that becomes the delight of all mankind. It's not just a duty, but our duty becomes delight. And let me remind you too, when you take that phrase, fear God and keep his commandments, it works so well together, and I think it needs to come in that order. Now, we don't think about this, but keep in mind that you don't obey the commandments of God in order to earn God's love and acceptance. That's not how it work, works. You obey the commands of God because you already have God's love and acceptance through Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian. So it's not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's not the, that's not the phrase of Christianity, Christianity works by saying, I am accepted in love because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. Therefore, I obey. And if you get those two phrases switched around, you're in a world of hurt. It's got to come in that order. So here's my, by way of application, I have one question first for everybody. For everybody in this room, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, maybe you're sort of on the fence this morning, you just showed up with a friend. I want to ask you this. Have you been changed by the greatness of, of God's love and grace? Have you been changed by the greatness of who he is? And even hearing that, you go, yeah. We're so, um, we're so consumed in such a visual world, aren't we? I mean, many of us spend half of our days now staring at screens. So, we're so, so visually oriented. There's images all around us. There's things that we're tempted to worship all around us. That sometimes I go, we just miss him because we forget about who God is and what he's done for us. Sometimes I wish Jesus could still be here in the flesh, that we could see him and hug him and just be with him. Have you been changed by the greatness of God's love and grace? Because you say, what has God ever done for me? You know what? The creator knows a thing or two about meaninglessness, right? Because God, our creator, did not create us meaningless. We are not accidents. And yet he knows what, the me what meaninglessness feels like. That he gave us a choice, that he gave, sin was an option. Why? Because love cannot be forced. And so he had to give Adam and Eve a choice. And they chose, and they rebelled against God. And meaninglessness came, and brokenness came. And it's not just in the world, it's in me, and it's in you. 
and it's a problem. And the holy God says the penalty for sin is death. And so now what? And we go, oh, really? Sin? Are we sure? Look around the world. What's the answer to that? We have a sin problem. And Jesus comes along, and in his grace, he pays our death penalty for us. He's the only man qualified to do it. You couldn't pay my sin problem. I couldn't pay your, the penalty for your sin. Somebody has to pay for it, or there's death, eternal death, separation from God kind of death. And so Jesus says, I'll do that for you. If you run to me, if you surrender to me, if you make me your Lord and master, we've got to see him as that. Do you know him in that way? And then specifically, if you're a Christian today, you say you have Jesus, you say you know him, but do you know him as more than just an intellectual principle? Do you know him today as more than just the answer to the question? You knew this was coming, right? Nobody was surprised by this. But do you know him as more than just an intellectual principle? And it's the, it's the Sunday school answer. Do you really love him and do you really know his love for you? Let that simmer just a bit. Do you find your purpose in him? Because the beautiful thing about Christianity is we get a person, not just a philosophy. We did not simply get a teacher who came along saying, here, let me show you the way. Let me show you the way to life, to purpose in life. No, no, he said, I am the purpose of life. I am the meaning of life. We don't get a philosophy. We don't get a principle. We get a person. And that's amazing. Do you know him? To know what you're here for, remember your creator. you got to start there. And you know what? The Bible makes a great deal about remembering all throughout the scriptures. Remember, 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 particularly in the Old Testament. So remember that diagram. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And so what is your why question? What's the answer to your why question? You know what? It's an application for me. I think when I wake up in the morning, that has to become the first thing I think about. That maybe I write that out and I put it in my Bible or something. Because the first thing I always think about is this, the plans for the day, right? The what of the day. But there's a why. And it makes all the difference in the world. See, there's two options. Without God, nothing means anything. Or with God, everything means everything. And there's no in-between. If there's an in-between, have the audacity to say, if your origin is meaningless and your destiny is meaningless, have the courage to say that life is meaningless. But we know that's not the case, don't we? We know it deep down that with God, everything means everything. And here's what that means, that everything in this life is simply a reflection of the truth of God's nature. Everything in life is simply a reflection of the truth of God's nature. And so we humans are created in the image of God, which means we humans matter, people matter to God. And so how you interact with a child or with a neighbor or with a friend matters because they are not just this accidental collision of a million molecules that will cease to exist one day because they're accidents. No, we are eternal, ceaseless beings who will all spend eternity somewhere. And that's a big deal. And so people matter to God. And for those who are found in Christ and who know him, we, as a matter of fact, don't need to fear the judgment at the end. Because that's a scary verse, right? The very last verse, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including all the hidden stuff. What am I hiding that nobody knows about? For the Christian, Christ is our righteousness. We're lost in Christ or we're found in Christ. It works both ways. But a thousand years from now, we'll be sitting around the throne of God, in the presence of God, laughing and delighting in who he is, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Because in Christ, we're, like, we're hidden in Christ, as Colossians 3 says. 
You're hidden with Christ in God, which also means that one conversation with a neighbor or with a coworker can make all the difference in the world, that you lean across that cubicle and say, hey, can I tell you about my faith? No, I'm going to tell you anyway. Because one conversation can turn into a relationship so that that person someday is around the throne of grace with you a million years from now, laughing and delighting in the presence of God because the people matter. And you know what else? Even the small stuff matters, right? Even the small stuff matters because God wired us that way. So when you clean your house, it's not just because you have this electrochemical reaction in your brain that demands order. It's because you are made in the image of a God who brings order out of chaos. And so we're wired that way on purpose, not by accident. It's because you're made in the image of God, and so we can find splendor even in the small, ordinary, mundane things of life. Because everything is shot through with glory. So either nothing means anything, or everything means everything. That is the message of Ecclesiastes. So would you run to him today, and would you remember your creator, and may we find our purpose in him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for preserving for us the wisdom of this teacher God, for thousands and thousands of years, and God, it starts so seemingly pessimistic, so glass half empty, and yet, God, in the end, we go, there's a reason we're here. God, we're not just accidents. God, help us to remember who you are, our creator. And God, by definition, that means we have purpose, we have meaning, there's a reason we're here. And so, God, help us be melted by that. Help us seek that. Help us to start every day with that why question. Why am I here? It's because I exist to live for the kingdom of God and to obey his commands and to make him my Lord and master. I surrender my life to him, that I am not the king of my life. Jesus is the king of my life. And thank you, Jesus, for taking our death penalty for us so that eternal life can begin now. Not just when we die, it starts now. So God, in everything we do, help us to find our purpose in you.